Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. of the night. Come on into our cabin out here in the Shenandoah. For you newcomers, I'm Stephen Kilpatrick, the host of Tales to Terrify. We've got some stories for you this evening, but as you get yourself situated and find yourself something to eat and drink, we'll hear from Tony. We're in the middle of a month-long pledge drive. As a simple reminder, how we exist currently and how we move forward with how we'd like to grow the entire District of Wonders relies solely your contributions. And now, Tony. So hello everyone. We are on to our third week of the Tales to Terrify fun drive to make sure we are kind of looking good in 2016. And again, I just want to emphasize, you know, how much everyone puts into the kind of the effort to make Tales to Terrify go. I just know when I mentioned in the first week that now Tales to Terrify is bigger, better, faster than the Starship Sofa. And that's a kind of strange thing to say, do you know what I mean? Because Starship Sofa is my baby. And it's amazing what, you know, looking back, you know, we're now into the kind of show 200s. And I just had this idea to get, you know, to do a horror. I knew there was something out there that we could give to the kind of horror genre. And what Larry started, Stephen and everyone's took on. And I want to honestly just keep that going. Do you know what I mean? That's the kind of fundamental process we're, we're talking about here is keeping the shows going. We give everything out for free. Everything out there, you know, we put out weekly. Even now you can come over and join the, the newsletter. You get Tales to Terrify Volume 1 free. I'm even giving that away free just to make sure we're kind of all going in the right direction. And it would be lovely if we can get some support off you as, you know, 
come over to Patreon. I know I'm harping on about it, but it really does. You know, this month there, I don't want to kind of keep on coming on every week, you know, what I mean? right throughout the year. But I want to kind of make sure we're aware in this month that Tales to Terrify is a very important part of our lives. Do you know what I mean? It's something that's kind of a very personal thing to have someone in your ear each week, you know, doing as as good as what Tales to Terrify does. Do you know what I mean? Bringing the stories, bringing the writers to life. And we would, you know, you've got to admit it to yourselves, we'd be lost without it. Do you know what I mean? I get lots of emails who, people who've kind of on the Starship Silver side, you know, it helps them through difficult times. It really does. Do you know what I mean? To the point now, we are actually setting up a little little thing called Sanctuary within the District of Wonders, you know, just to kind of give people support through difficult times because these shows really do help and we want this help to kind of keep on, you know, going. It's as simple as that, you know, if you can help with we need help as well, you know what I mean? That, that was a little kind of bridge there crossed. We do need help as well, support with, with you know, Patreon. It's the best way I'm now finding over kind of the, 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 kind of the time, the span I've been doing these podcasts. Monthly donations just drip feed in and just give her like something to kind of rest, you know, the shows on to make sure they're doing kind of fall off the edge, you know, in the kind of pod fade business. We lost two last couple of years ago. I don't want to do that again. Do you know what I mean? What we've got here in District of Wonders and what Tales to Terrify has especially got is a, a, a lovely, vibrant community. Come over and keep that community going and support with it. It's all we ask, you know what I mean? All we want to do is just kind of keep on Making and producing the shows that you love. That's the goal. There is no other goal than that. Do you know what I mean? We, it, this is our hobby. We like it. Yeah, we might have day jobs. We might have kind of stresses and everything like that in our outside world. But when everyone who's kind of working in the District of Wonders comes down to kind of do their little bit, it's, it's a feel good factor. Do you know what I mean? And we just want to keep on doing it because we know there's people out there who really appreciate it. Do you know what I mean? Support with. That's all we ask. Thank you again, Tony. Now, if I could interject just a bit here about Patreon. Going into the use of Patreon, I had, to be honest, a bit of ignorance about it. I had some vague familiarity with how it worked, some sort of crowdfunding thing, right? As the district settled on Patreon as its platform for managing funding, I naturally had to become more familiar with it. The idea is, if you're not educated on how this site works, is that you, the listener, become a patron, hence Patreon, of the District of Wonders, and once a month a certain amount of money comes from the method of payment of your choice into our coffers. How is this any different from the single donation you give twice a year? Well, I imagine that it's easier on your budget being spread out over the year, and it's something a bit more steady for us. If you are accustomed to giving us $25 a year, having $2 come out of your checking account a month is easier, and we can count on that $2 a month as something a bit more steady than the wild swing of our cash box around donation drive time. So I'm completely for this whole Patreon system, and I'm already sniffing around for other creative projects on the site to check out. Let's get on to our fiction, though, shall we? Our first story of the evening comes from Lawrence Falsantano. 
Lawrence enjoys writing mysteries, suspense, and horror short stories from his home in New Jersey. He has been published in numerous anthologies from Static Movement, Horrified Press, and Wicked Press. He has also been published online and in print magazines such as The Storyteller, Great Mystery and Suspense Magazine, Calliope, Midnight Screaming, and more. He became interested in writing fiction as a young student when he was introduced to the works of Edgar Allan Poe. His short story, Morana's Revenge, is his homage to the author. You will hear now. With trembling hand, I put pen to paper, recalling the grisly events that have consigned me to the hangman. I fear, I dread, I torment, as I sit imprisoned within these walls, awaiting my fate. A fate unjustly thrust upon me by misfortune. Of sympathy, I expect none. Of understanding, I can merely be hopeful. It is only justice, after I am gone, that I trust these words will deliver. Yet, there is no remorse for the deed. Remorse infers guilt, of which I have none. You will see, I am the victim of the occurrence, not the villain. I had lived with Elizabeth for several years since our marriage. She was a woman of exceptional beauty. I had treasured her from the moment I saw her and knew she was the woman with whom I wanted to spend my life. We married soon after college and lived comfortably in a large stone house, which I was fortunate enough to have inherited from my father's estate. The house was surrounded by acreage and situated within the green hills of the New England countryside. Elizabeth loved its quietude and quaintness, and I looked forward to its solitude after a day's work. Although Elizabeth and I were childless, our love for each other grew with the years and our happiness grew with it, until the day Elizabeth received a telegram from Dr. Gordon. The good doctor informed Elizabeth that her mother had been injured in a fall and should not be left unattended since she would be convalescing for some time and, being a widow, had no one to care for her. Naturally, Elizabeth insisted her mother stay with us during her healing process. My relationship with my wife's mother had been a temperate one, with no inordinate emotions between us. Therefore, being the understanding husband I was, I immediately made arrangements to have Morena transported from her hospital bed to our home. It was on that cursed day my living nightmare began, for soon after Morena's arrival I felt a marked neglect from Elizabeth. She directed her attention to her mother's well-being to the exclusion of everything, including me. In time she began to neglect herself as well. The once golden sheen in her hair faded to a lusterless pallor, as did the vibrant color in her cheeks. When I implored her to see her way, she insisted her mother's health was paramount. My efforts to make her see what she was becoming were futile. Resignedly, I let her have her way with the expectation that Morena would recover quickly and leave our home. But she did not. Although her condition improved to the point where she could walk about her room unassisted, Elizabeth insisted her mother remain with us until her recovery was complete. I relented. Weeks passed, and to abate the tedium of her confinement, Elizabeth brought her mother a sewing kit to help pass her time. This included an abundance of various colored threads, different sized needles, and a multitude of patterns from which to create a variety of stitching projects. Morena embraced her new pastime and quickly became proficient with needle and thread, even to the degree of making new pillow covers for the sitting room sofa. As for me, my days were insufferable. I found no joy in returning home after work to the place I once cherished, 
Now my nights were empty and lonely, while my wife spent her time in the second-floor room, attending to her mother's comforts. As time passed, I took my own comfort from the liquor cabinet. I imbibed more than my share and enjoyed it without contrition. Wine and whiskey helped me escape the surroundings into which I had been imprisoned. The libation allowed me to see Morena for what she truly was, an insidious old woman whose presence was the destruction of my marriage and my life. Three was a crowd, and what had begun as an annoyance grew to a loathing for her with each passing day. Morena developed a mutual disgust for me as well, unjustly blaming me for what her daughter had become, accusing me of neglecting my wife and my home and calling me an indolent drunkard. In time there evolved a discernible change in my wife as well. Influenced by her mother, she had developed a misguided belief that I was responsible for our happy days being behind us. Oh, the torment and heartache of being abandoned by the woman I loved. Up to this point there had been only malicious bickering between Morena and I, until one evening, as we were engaged in a violent shouting match, she stood in the doorway of her room, her face livid, promising vengeance for what she believed I had done to her daughter. You'll pay for what you've done, she shouted, shaking a clenched fist. I'll have my revenge. I took the threat idly and thought no more of it. What had I to fear from a half-crippled, aging woman? I began to spend more time away from home. Each evening after work, I would visit the bird's nest, a local tavern where I sat alone and drank away my oppression for hours, returning home only after I was sure Elizabeth and her mother had retired for the night. In the morning I would leave for work earlier than usual to avoid their unwarranted bickering. In time, all communication between us ceased. For a long while, my days lingered on this way. My drinking became excessive and soon became a prevailing habit. One evening, during the third week of my torment, after having stopped by the bird's nest for my usual aggregate of drink, I chanced upon my old friend, Jacob Corbett. Jacob had been a friend and college classmate, whom I hadn't seen in years. We embraced at the joy of seeing each other again and took a table together. The evening passed over beer and whiskey, and the telling of small lies about our lives. At length I invited him to my home. An evening of conversation and companionship would be a welcome pleasure for me. We arrived shortly before midnight. Elizabeth and her mother were long asleep and the house was dark and quiet. At the sitting-room table, I set up wine and cheese and we drank and ate while we told tall tales about our school days. As the night progressed, I suggested a game of gin rummy. Jacob agreed and I retrieved a deck of cards from the break-front drawer and a fresh bottle of wine. We played and laughed for nearly an hour until Jacob suggested, to abate the monotony, that we place a small wager on the games. I agreed. As the night wore on, our drinking increased as did our wagers. I had been losing steadily, and our game became not a game of enjoyment, but a struggle of wits for the large sum of money on the table between us. After more than a dozen hands, I believed I finally held a winning group of cards. When the time came, I cheerfully revealed my hand to my friend, or should I say, my opponent. He looked surprised as he focused his glassy eyes on the cards spread before him, and then at the large pile of cash beside them. At last, I said, it is my turn to collect. As I reached to gather my winnings, Jacobs stood suddenly and pointed a shaky finger at me. Cheat, he shouted. You have not won a single hand all night. 
Suddenly you claim the largest prize of all. I was at first taken aback by this accusation. Realizing my friend was heavily intoxicated, I endeavored to explain my winning as honest luck. However, he was obstinate and waved his arms in anger. You have brought me here tonight to steal my money, he said, a clever ruse. You are wrong, my friend, I pleaded. I have played the game fairly. When I approached him in an effort to calm his concerns, he pushed away from me in the direction of the fireplace. Upon placing my hand on his shoulder, he turned suddenly and grabbed the iron poker from the hearth and swung it in a wide arc in my direction. I was surprised by this turn of events and attributed his rage to the large amount of wine he had consumed. Nonetheless, his mission was to do me bodily harm, and I had no option but to defend myself. I sidestepped the blow, but he raised the iron again, this time bringing it down like a hammer. I reached up and grabbed the iron, and a struggle ensued. He fought like a madman, his eyes ablaze, his face writhing in contortions of indignation. When I secured the iron from his grasp, he charged me like a bull, knocking me against the mantle, and bringing his sweaty hands up quickly around my neck. I struggled for air as he pressed his thumbs steadily into my throat. Gasping and choking, I managed to swing the poker against the side of his head. It landed with a crack, and Jacob Corbett slid to the floor at my feet. I paused to regain my breathing, then knelt beside him. The crimson discharge oozing from the wound in his skull caused me to grimace. His sightless eyes staring at the yellowed ceiling and the stillness of his body told me Jacob Corbett was dead. I took my seat at the table and with trembling hands poured myself a glass of wine. In a matter of minutes, my life had gone from bad to worse. I was now accountable for a corpse, which was none of my design. The house was quiet. Elizabeth and Morena had, no doubt, slept through the commotion. I collected my thoughts and decided quickly my best course of action was to dispose of the body. A police investigation would not prove favorable to me, and upon learning of this encounter, Morena would delight in trying to convince the authorities that I had deliberately committed murder. I walked back to the corpse and lifted it over my shoulder. Struggling with the burden, I walked through the kitchen and opened the door to the cellar. Carefully, I descended the stone stairs into the darkness. At the bottom, I removed the lantern from the hook where it hung and lit it with a match from my pocket. I made my way through the chilled dampness of a long corridor to the extreme of the cellar, passing neglected rooms that had been of no use to me other than to serve as a repository for a few pieces of old furniture and some rusted garden tools. I secured a spade and bow saw, and continued to the smallest room at the most remote end of the corridor. I dropped the corpse to the earth floor and stood in the silence. There were no windows in the room, and a narrow archway entrance kept it obscured from the rest of the cellar. I placed the lantern on the ground and went to work digging a hole in the loose soil at the center of the floor. I worked until the hole was large enough to contain the remains, and then took up the bow saw and knelt beside the corpse. In my cleverness to conceal the crime, I had determined I must not only hide the cadaver, but also dismember it. A dissected corpse would decay more quickly than the whole of its parts. I began by sawing off the head first, looking away as Jacob Corbett watched me with vacant eyes. Then I sawed off the arms and finally the legs. Being careful not to get blood spattered, I kicked each member into the hole with my foot. When the torso alone remained, it became necessary to push this heaviest of the body parts over the edge with my hands. With a quick but strenuous effort, it landed at the bottom of the pit with a thud. My blood ran cold. 
more than an hour passed, and I hastened to make an end to my labor before the sun rose. As I began tossing shovelfuls of earth back into the hole, I was suddenly overcome with the peculiar feeling that I was not alone. Perhaps a feeling of guilt or remorse was playing tricks on me. I stopped and stood motionless, listening for any sounds from the corridor. I retrieved my lantern and scanned the darkness. My light shone through the archway and traveled over the stone and mortar walls, passing glistening webs as eight-legged creatures scrambled for the refuge of darkness. Seeing nothing untoward, I concluded it was a manifestation of my own mind and returned to the task before me. When at last the void was filled, I loosened the top layer of soil to match the soil surrounding it. Satisfied that any recent disturbance of the area was undetectable, I returned the tools, replaced the lantern, and climbed the stairs back to the upper floor to retire for the night. After an uneasy sleep, I awoke the following morning as if from a bad dream. The burden of the previous night's event weighed heavily on my mind. My head was aching, and my body was weak. I bathed and dressed, and thought a large breakfast might relieve my anxiety. On my way to the kitchen, I found Elizabeth and her mother in the sitting room standing by the open front door. Elizabeth carried an overnight bag. I'm taking my mother home, she said, and will be staying with her indefinitely. I was surprised and dismayed upon hearing this and stepped closer to her with pleading eyes. It is no use, she said before I could utter a word. I can no longer live alone with you. Morena spoke not a word but the vengeance in her eyes burned through me like the fires of hell, revealing more to me than any word she could speak. I could offer no dissent as they entered a cab and I watched it drive away. I had finally been confronted by the fear I dreaded. Although Elizabeth held feelings of ill will toward me, my compassion for her was unyielding. She had become a misguided and confused wife, prejudiced by a sinister old woman. I could only hope this nightmare would soon end and my good wife would return to me. From that night forward, my only companion was the bottle. As I drank, thoughts of Jacob Corbett's withered remains below me swirled in my head. One night as I sat in a half-stupor, I saw his decayed and bloated corpse appear at the table opposite me, pointing an accusing finger in my direction. Compelled by fear and anger, I hurled a full bottle of whiskey at the horrific image, and it vanished in an instant. It was as though his ghost had risen from the cellar to haunt me. I drank more in an effort to obliterate the specter. Another week passed, and I felt confident the crime would never be discovered. I had been drinking less and thinking more of how to bring my beloved wife home to me and return my marriage to its blissful state. It was, however, on the following Saturday evening that I received a visit from the local authorities. In my doorway stood a young uniformed policeman and a well-dressed older detective. I allowed them entrance without trepidation. We are investigating the disappearance of one Jacob Corbett, the detective said. The barkeeper at the bird's nest identified you as a regular and recalled you and Mr. Corbett drinking there last week. He remembered seeing the two of you leave together. The barkeeper is correct, I said. We had come here for a nightcap, and after a short visit, my friend left for home. I haven't seen him since. My manner was convincing. The detective thought for a moment and then continued. There is a second matter, possibly related to the first, he said. Police headquarters has received a wire stating there had been heard numerous quarrels from inside this house. The anonymous sender claimed the shouting had been of such magnitude they believed someone's life might be in peril. I laughed, 
and assured him the only persons living with me were my wife and her half-invalid mother, and that they had been away, and I'd been alone in the house for the past week. Here he produced a warrant to search the premises. This I had not expected, but I cooperated fully for what had I to fear. I led them through the rooms on the main floor and guided them through the second-floor bedrooms. They searched well, every closet and corner. When the time came, I advised them to be cautious on the stone stairs as we descended into the cellar. Feeling no anxiety, I removed the lantern from its hook and lighted their way cordially. They searched like alley-cats every inch of every room, and I was amused by their ineptness and gratified by my own cunning. At length we came to the small room at the end of the corridor. The policeman entered before me, and I followed with the light. As I passed beneath the archway, the glaring rays of my light fell upon a vision of overwhelming horror. Had I gone mad? Had I been haunted by a specter of my own making? For a moment, my companions stood motionless, shocked and awed at the scene before them. Overcome by the ghastly presence, I fell back against the opposing wall, dropped the lantern, and gave out a long, shrill cry, for my fate had been sealed. The light from the lantern bounced along the stone walls until it came to rest upon the corpse of Jacob Corbett, precariously seated in a far corner upon the earth floor. The rough stitching securing the head and limbs to the torso, and the contrast of black thread against sallow dead skin, revealed one certain conclusion. Morena had procured her revenge. That was Lawrence Falsitano's Marina's Revenge, as read by Jonathan Dans. Jonathan Dans is a writer who lives on the edge, the new River Gorge, that is, in West Virginia. With his wife, daughter, and a menagerie of domestic pets, when not narrating, Jonathan can be found working on his first novel, riding his bike in the woods, or hanging out with his family. He even manages to hold down a steady job. If the mood strikes, visit him at his blog, Words and Coffee at JonathanDans.com. Link, as always, will be in the show notes. I think that Mr. Dans has recently redone the site because it looks a bit nicer than I remember. Also, he has a post from the end of December remarking on his use of Scrivener, which is a really nice piece of writing software. You might want to take a look. Our second story of the evening comes from Paul Kane, who we have heard from quite a bit recently, even from a couple of weeks ago. Paul Kane was born in the town of Chesterfield, Derbyshire, in the UK in 1973, and grew up on a state not too far away. The son of a miner and a former secretary, Paul developed a taste for the strange and outlandish at an early age, after his granddad read him a bedtime story about a mysterious house that dwelt within a sea of fog. In his early teens, he discovered the joys of horror, science fiction, and fantasy literature, raiding the local second-hand bookshops for anything and everything associated with these genres. Paul read insatiably often, sneaking away during school dinner hours to lose himself in the pages of such tomes. Paul has a very detailed biography on his website, which is, of course, linked in the show notes. He has an enormous collection of writing accomplishments, more than we could recount here. However, most recently his new novel from SST Publications, Blood Red, is now available. And now we will hear Paul Kane's Words to the Wise. In the beginning was the Word, and that was terrifying enough. Then more words, sentences 
the bastards gathering together, multiplying like vermin, swarming like insects, and just as hard to get rid of. You couldn't call in an exterminator to eliminate them, especially not then, not back in the day. How did humans go from grunting at each other, from painting pictures on the cave walls to communicating through language, then writing this down on those same walls? The forefathers of kids who sprayed graffiti all over the brickwork of certain parts of the city where he grew up, little realizing the real damage they were doing, the plague they were spreading. Not that they were anywhere near as dangerous as the ones encased in board or leather. That came later, after the words and sentences. The pages, then the covers, committing them to the ages, helping them to endure. Some people created prisons for the words, locking them with clasps which ran from front to back, holding the monstrosities inside but eventually even they would be unfastened and read. It made Samuel Kellerman shudder to even think about it. The very act of opening one of those things, letting out what was inside, speaking the... When had it started for him? When had he begun to notice the power they had, not just to influence people, to influence the world but also to destroy, to wreak their havoc. As with most things, in those all-important formative years. His first-ever memories were of his parents sitting by the side of his bed, legs crossed with one of those fucking torture devices resting on their laps. They'd open it, then begin translating what was there into sound, releasing it into the air, its vileness so strong he'd almost been able to taste it. The stories, the tales they told about far-off places, about monsters and heroes, ostensibly good would triumph over evil, but Samuel knew... Oh, how he knew that once they'd been let out, those words, those stories, couldn't be contained again. They'd remain in his room, invisible, only coming to life once his parents had gone again, turning out the lights, apart from that one nightlight that made everything seem so much worse. The monsters they'd read about, all the ogres and dragons and witches and goblins were suddenly there in the room with him, but no heroes to be found. In real life, heroes didn't exist. Samuel realized that at an early age, too. The words formed themselves into those creatures, somehow taking shape, using the dreaded language to mold themselves into something that could never be stopped, something that wanted him so badly. He'd scream and scream night after night, beg to be let into his parents' room, to sleep there so he'd be safe, because the word monsters very rarely attacked if you were in groups, though he suspected this did happen on occasion. They'd sigh, but allow him in just to get some peace, then try to get him to settle the next night by opening more books, reading more stories. They just didn't get it. 
in spite of his trying to explain to them in his own way. What a vivid imagination, his mother would insist. Too vivid, his father would snap, bleary-eyed. Samuel suspected he was the cause of his parents' breakup, that they couldn't cope with his strange ways. It was also probably the reason they distanced themselves from him as he grew up. Not that he could talk. He hadn't made much of an effort since his childhood to keep in touch, either. He certainly didn't write them. Oh, no. It was the same thing at school, and they could actually force him to attend. School was full of the damn things, on shelves, inside desks, and backpacks. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And that was before you even got to the library. He'd had to be physically restrained more than once when in class, and the teachers would say, without thinking about it, would you all take out your books and turn to... That was it. He just had to get out. Samuel was taken to see people, of course, men dressed in tweed, who talked at him as much as they did to him, tried to get him to disclose his knowledge, tell them his secrets, open up about his little problem. They even gave it a name which was hardly accurate, Bibliophobia, but after many sessions when they were considering sending him away for treatment, and especially after they'd caught him with those matches, he just wanted to burn a few of the things, an ultimately futile but token gesture. They would have gone up so easily. He figured out it was best to try and hide his fears, pretend everything was all right. 
even though this was so very far from the truth. They'd still catch him, however, those men in tweed, glancing sideways at the books on their shelves, wriggling in the chair under their harsh gaze, that army of hardbacks. Because the non-fiction was as dangerous as the fiction, Samuel had figured out, probably more so because it could influence you on an even greater level under the guise of legitimacy. One of those men in tweed once said to him, it's only people who write down the words who write the books. It's how we make sense of the world. They come from us. And yes, uh, in a sense they did. But the books, once opened, also fed us and infected us, perpetuating this vicious circle of contamination. Make sense of the world? It was how the ultimate chaos was caused. Samuel would have been happier living in a society where everyone was struck dumb and had their hands cut off at birth. At least then there would be no way of it getting out. The sickness. Most of the words would remain between those covers. Or would they? In his dreams, Samuel could hear the rustle of the leaves. Imagine that they could worm their way out on their own prize open their coffins like vampires and climb out, slithering in chains of letters like snakes to wrap themselves around you. His worst nightmares would revolve around being pulled into their world, the one created by them, facilitated by human beings. A black magic kingdom, a hell in which they languished and were the masters of. It was a wonder he hadn't gone stark staring mad by his late teens. But he'd been stronger than that, got a handle on it, and learned to cope with those monstrosities that seemed to be all around him wherever he turned. He'd minimized the risk as much as he could, but how could you escape it, really? They were everywhere, like oxygen. He couldn't even go into a supermarket without being confronted with them down at least one of the aisles or even at the checkout. Paperbacks on special offer. Oh, they were special, all right. He wanted to scream at the people around him. Why can't you fucking well see it? The danger you're in. No, don't pick that up. Don't open. His hand would be on the matches in his pocket his only protection by this point. But what was the use? It seemed he was the only one who knew their true nature. Everyone else had been brainwashed. Yes, he was the only one wise to their game. He decided once his 18th birthday had passed that an urban environment probably wasn't the best for him, so he moved to one of the quietest places he could find, out into the countryside, where there was an abundance of the raw material used to make those blasted things, but still in its natural form, the rustling of a different kind of leaves and the light breeze here. Samuel found work on a local farm, which helped him pay the rent at a local boarding house. Everyone was friendly enough, and though he couldn't guarantee not encountering one of his enemies, at least he wasn't seeing them on the subway or posters of them plastered everywhere. 
it was an occasional encounter, not day to day, and the most he'd have to deal with at the nearby shop were the magazines and newspapers which were on the far side, away from the food and drink, anyway. He'd spent his days working hard out in the fields, enjoying everything nature had to offer. There was nothing quite like toiling against a backdrop of rolling green hills under a blue sky and full yellow sun to re-energize you. His nights were more peaceful. Samuel had requested when he first moved in that the TV set be taken out of his room at the boarding house. "'Prefer to read, eh?' said his landlady, Mrs. Mathis, who had a face like a scrunched-up tissue. The smile Samuel gave her, in reply, was more like a grimace. He couldn't watch TV, because the channels played shows and films based on books— it was second-hand, filtered through directors and producers, but at the heart of that so-called entertainment were the words, from books to screenplays, to the eye. And he'd never owned a computer or a mobile phone. Emails and texts were as alien to Samuel as breathing underwater, and just as hazardous as far as he was concerned. He went on like this for some time, confident he was avoiding their attentions. He'd even started going to the local public house, the Lion and Lamb, every now and again for a drink. They had no TV in the corner like some pubs, and preferred to hang paintings and photos on the walls rather than line them with ticking time bombs in the form of reading matter. Samuel hung out with the residents of the village, played games of dominoes, darts, and pool, and generally enjoyed his life. He was known as the quiet one because he very rarely engaged in trivial conversation, didn't waste his, didn't like to use words, but generally he was happy for a while. Something was missing. Something had always been missing. He found out what that was when he caught sight of her one day. There had been other girls, women, in the village, in the lion and lamb, but Samuel had never really been interested. For one thing, in a place like this, where the ratio of male to female was something like fifty to one, most of them were already taken. But not her. Not yet, anyway. Samuel first saw her strolling through the village one Saturday afternoon. He'd been on his way to the shop to pick up supplies for the weekend and stopped dead in his tracks. Her long brown hair was only just held back with a headband, curls escaping from the side as she bounded happily down the street. Her face was like something out of a Renaissance painting, skin pale but fresh, and cheeks alive with color. She was wearing a white summer dress with red spots, kitten heels on her feet. Samuel felt his heart stop, then start again, then beat faster than before. She had to be new to the village because he'd never seen her before, and he'd seen all of the villagers many, many times over the years. She caught him staring at her and glanced away, then back again. He hadn't moved, but his mouth was gaping open. Heaven knows what he must have looked like. But when he saw her frowning, he closed his mouth and attempted a smile, a much better one than he'd given Mrs. Mathis when he first moved here. To his surprise, she smiled back, then began making her way over. 
Samuel felt his heart beating faster than ever, faster even then when he'd been alone in his room as a child and those word monsters had... Hello, she called as she finished crossing the street, holding up her hand to shade her eyes, which he now noticed were hazel-colored. Do I know you from somewhere? Samuel couldn't speak, wasn't used to it anyway. He simply nodded, then shook his head. She laughed. <laughs> Which is it? He knew what she meant, that it felt like they'd met before, but hadn't. It was weird, and he didn't know how to explain it. So, finding his voice from somewhere, he blurted, No, but... You really do seem familiar to me. Did you go to school around here? Another shake of the head, firmer this time. So she'd gone to school in the village, maybe moved away and returned. He savored every new little piece of information about her. That's really strange. I'm Leah, Leah Russell, she told him, as if it might jolt his memory. S Samuel, he managed. She smiled again, wider this time. I like that, Samuel. Sammy. He shook his head again. Samuel, he repeated more emphatically. Sammy reminded him of his youth, and he didn't want that. Not now. <laughs> Not ever. Okay, Samuel it is, then. But she would never remember and always called him Sammy. Look, I've just moved back and around here, and this is all a bit of a culture shock for me. A lot of things are the same, but there's so much that's changed. Would you mind maybe showing me around a bit? Heart still beating out of his chest, Samuel had agreed. They spent the rest of that afternoon touring the village, with Leah doing most of the talking, to be honest. She didn't seem to mind Samuel being quiet, and he didn't mind hearing more about her as they walked. The fact that she'd lived here for a few years of her childhood fostered out to a couple who were now long since dead. The fact she'd always wanted to come back because she enjoyed the peace and quiet, although she still rented out a place in a town not far away because she still worked there. She worked in a small museum containing objects from the place's past, which she found fascinating. Samuel took all this in, growing increasingly fascinated with her. I'm on a bit of an extended leave at the moment while I get sorted out here. They ended up in the lion and lamb that evening, and he couldn't help but notice the looks Leah drew from the other men. But they found a secluded corner and talked some more, well, Leah did, until it was closing time and then he walked her back to her place, a cottage on the outskirts of the village. "'Well, thanks for a lovely day, Sammy. Uh, Samuel,' she said. "'I hope we can do it again sometime. I'd invite you in, but I'm still getting straight inside.' He nodded once more, and she kissed him on the cheek. Samuel didn't remember the walk back to his own home. The next couple of weeks passed in much the same way, with them seeing each other as often as possible, fitting it around his work at the farm. Samuel caught her eye and came up a few times as he stacked bales of hay with his shirt off. You really are a bit of a discovery, Sammy, she told him as she picked him up in her little Ford car. 
She wanted to know how come he'd chosen that profession. He was a bright young man, after all, and it was true. The farmer had asked if he wanted to help with the more administrative side of things, like keeping the books. <laughs> Keep them? Samuel would rather have cooked them. He told Lear he just preferred the simpler way of life. Then the night came when she did invite him into her cottage. It's still a bit of a mess. I just haven't got around to unloading most of it, Leah explained, flicking back a rogue strand of curly hair. It was true. Most of her belongings were still in crates and boxes, giving the place a simpler look about it. Samuel pulled a face when he saw the laptop open on her coffee table, though, but she moved it out of the way so they could sit down and enjoy the wine she'd fetched. Maybe you could help me get things straight here, she suggested. Move some of the furniture and stuff. I mean, it's not as if you're a weakling, is it? And with that, she moved closer to him on the couch, hand running over the muscles of his arm, feeling his chest through the thin cotton shirt he had on, feeling his racing heart. Before he knew what was happening, Samuel was in bed with Leah. He didn't have any time to worry about her being his first, and if she noticed then, she certainly didn't say anything. That was amazing, Leah said afterwards, laying back, panting. I don't know, it just feels right with you, Sammy. I've never had that before. Samuel smiled, and the nightmares left him alone that night. It wouldn't be long before they returned again, a week or so later when Samuel called round to help with Leah's unpacking. She asked him to carry one of the heavy boxes upstairs, but he tripped on a piece of loose carpet, dropping the cardboard container on its edge, where it split. They pushed their way out, hardbacks and paperbacks alike, and Samuel recoiled, biting back the scream in his throat hand instinctively going to his pocket where he kept his matches. Stupid, 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 stupid! He'd been an idiot to think she wouldn't have books packed. Someone like Leah, just because he hadn't seen any so far. She had no TV, after all, or just hadn't got around to getting one for this place. It made sense that she'd need to do something to pass the time when she wasn't with him. Sammy? "'Sammy, what is it?' asked Leah, meeting him as he rushed to the base of the stairs. "'Samuel!' he barked at her. "'My name is Samuel!' Then he collapsed into her arms and began sobbing. After he'd made her take the box of books outside, while he sat curled up in the corner of the living room, hand still on his pocket, he explained what was wrong. It was probably the longest he'd ever spoken to Leah. Everything just came tumbling out. When he finished, breathing hard, he looked at her for a response, for that smile he'd seen the first day he'd met her. It was conspicuous by its absence. Her expression, a mixture of shock and disgust. But, but surely there are people you could see about this, she began. He shook his head. He'd been there, done that, bought the fucking T-shirt, mug, and badge. I, I should go, he said, rising, but she'd placed her hand on his arm. We'll figure this out, she told him. 
I promise you, Sam, Samuel, I love you. Then she smiled, and he felt like everything really was going to be all right. I love you too, he told her. Then they held each other. Leah's sabbatical ended not long after that, and though they kept on seeing each other when she was back at the cottage, now devoid of her collection of books, they're evil, Leah. You have to get rid of them. She was gone for longer and longer periods. Work, she said, at the museum. Samuel missed Leah so, so much. It wasn't as if he could phone her up or email or text. On more than a few visits, she mentioned a guy called Trevor, who worked at the museum and was the cleverest person she knew. He thinks there are things you could do. You've talked about me to someone? I had to, she said, tears welling in her eyes. All this is a lot to handle on my own. Samuel's face wrinkled up worse than Mrs. Mathis's, but she continued. There are therapies, things you could do to have a normal life, so we could have a normal life. He felt like saying, what? Destroy all the fucking books in the world? Get rid of every sentence, word, everything with writing on it, anywhere? Stop people writing it all down? But instead he offered, But we could, we do have a life, don't we? Like this? When her eyes dipped, he knew she wanted more. For him, for them both. Samuel began to suspect something might be going on with this Trevor, the way she talked about him all the time when she was back, the way the bloke reckoned he could cure Samuel like he knew what he was fucking talking about. It was more to impress Leah than anything, he suspected. I want you to come and meet him, Leah said one weekend. Just hear what he has to say. Samuel grunted, but reluctantly agreed. He did want to meet this man if only to check out what all the fuss was about. Eye up the competition. Of course it would mean going into the town, but he'd have Leah at least to lean on. Straight to the museum in the car, she promised, then straight back again. He'd made it from the car park to the museum with little difficulty in spite of a bus going past advertising the latest bestseller. Inside, Samuel could see why Leah liked it here. The objects from the past in glass cabinets. Don't think about the panels of writing beneath them. The old photographs, just like they had back at the Lion and Lamb. People doing an honest day's work in mines, at factories, on farms. Just down here, Leah said, waving her hand to a set of steps. Samuel descended cautiously, then walked to the corridor below. The light was dimmer down here, shadowy. Trevor's office was the room at the end, she told him, following. He opened the door and stepped inside. Samuel was halfway in before he even realized where he was. Then he was pushed further inside by stronger hands than Leah's. The door slammed behind him, locks turning. No, he breathed, then turned and banged on the door. No, please, let me out. As for your own good, came a voice through the door, a man's voice, Trevor, 
who still had no face to Samuel. Samuel turned back round again, saw the rows and rows of books in this basement, the half-light throwing shadows across the room. We have one of the biggest collections of fiction and non-fiction in the district, all donated by the public, said the voice. You might as well make yourself comfortable. You're going to be in there a while. Leah! Her name was a wail. I'm sorry, Samuel, came her voice eventually. But Trevor says you need to confront your fear to overcome it. No, shouted Samuel, banging on the door again. You don't understand what you're doing, what you've done. Already he could hear the rustle of the pages, so many pages, of so many books. He was the lamb, and they were about to have him in the lion's den. It's the only way, sobbed Leah, the only way to cure you. Cure me? thought Samuel. You're going to kill me. Kill or cure? Kill or cure? He could hear footsteps receding, Trevor probably dragging Leah away so she wouldn't have to listen to Samuel's pleas. This wasn't like going cold turkey. He wasn't an addict. His fear was completely real, and now he knew that she had become infected too, all those years of reading. He'd been kidding himself to think she was okay, that he could trust her. Samuel turned, hand going to the pocket where his mattress were. Fumbling, he felt inside and brought out the box. Then something touched his leg, and he began to scream even louder than when he was a child. Leah lay on the bed, unable to sleep. In the months that had passed since they tried to help Samuel, everything had changed. She heard the heavy breathing of a figure, the lump of a man beside her, Trevor, who she turned to only after Samuel. No, it had been her fault. She listened to Trevor in the first place, this caught psychology, that you had to face what you were scared of to be free of it. Well, now she was free of Samuel, and not a day had gone by that she hadn't missed him. When they'd returned to the basement library after several hours, and night had fallen, everything was silent. To begin with, Leah thought Samuel might have passed out. What if he's really hurt inside there, she'd said, biting her lip. What if he'd done something to himself, she meant. Maybe his phobia ran much deeper than either of them imagined. It had sounded silly to her, especially with her love of books, her aspirations to maybe one day become a writer, banging away on that laptop of hers, getting so far in and then giving up. When they'd opened up the door, they'd found books everywhere, on the floor, open and hanging from the shelves. Some looked like they'd had pages ripped out of them. Others were dented as if they'd been punched. Leah stepped forward and something crunched beneath her feet. She bent down and picked up a match. She saw more of them now scattered about down there, the box some distance away, 
as if it had been knocked from the hand. Christ, what had she done? If Samuel had lit one of those. But he hadn't, and there was no sign of him either. They looked everywhere in that room, called his name. Nothing. He must have got out through the vent, said Trevor, pointing up to the shaft on the far wall. It looked knackered at the best of times, so it might have been removed, though why replace it again? But surely it was too small for anyone to squeeze through. In a panic, desperate to get away, Samuel might have. In her gut, Leah didn't really believe that, but it made the most logical sense. In any event, she hadn't seen Samuel since. They drove around the city, looking on the streets, but saw nothing. He wasn't back at the village. Mrs. Mathis hadn't seen or heard from him when Leah returned. Neither had they seen him up at the farm. By the following week, his job was gone, and his room let out to someone else. Leah hadn't been able to stay in that village, too many memories from the previous summer, so she'd moved back to the flat in town, putting the cottage up for sale again before she'd even got to know it that well. Unlike Samuel, she'd known, or thought she'd known, him so well. It wasn't until later that she'd understood why. He was like so many characters she'd read about, an amalgamation of the heroes from her favorite books, the strong, silent type, and he was such a good listener. Had something somehow engineered their meeting? He was also the character she wrote about as her male lead, more often than not, the perfect man, and now he was gone forever, leaving her with Trevor. He began to snore as she lay there listening, unable to sleep because of the nightmares. Nightmares, like the one Samuel told her about where she saw his death over and over again in that basement library. Saw him fighting off the books as they flew from the shelves. Saw chains of words snaking from inside them, tugging at his leg, yanking the mashes from his grasp pulling him apart and then absorbing him into their pages. In the past, she would have read if she couldn't sleep. But the battered paperback she'd begun a couple of months ago was shut away in her bedside table after she'd fancied she saw the words emerging from the page as she read one night, after too much Merlot, admittedly. Imagine she'd seen them form into shapes, figures, maybe even monsters. She slammed the book closed, then heard the rustling of the others on the shelves. The book she told Samuel she'd got rid of, but had really only been hiding from him. How could she part with her beloved collection? She was thinking about doing just that, though, lately. Having them around was making her just too uneasy. You should write about all this, she told herself turn it into a story. Might even finish it this time. Might even get somewhere with it. But wasn't that what they wanted, the living words that had killed Samuel, or kept him locked up inside their worlds even now because he knew the truth? If she fictionalized all that, wouldn't she be drawing attention away from the danger? 
making fictions from fact, just as they made fact from fictions. She was starting to wise up now, wasn't she? Starting to see how right Sammy had been, how horrific the act she'd allowed to happen. Leah heard the rustling again now, drew the bedclothes up to her chin like she was a little girl again, afraid of the shadows. Trevor continued to snore, but the rustling was drowning him out. In the beginning, she whispered, was the word. And it would be there at the end as well, even after they were all gone, when it had done what it needed to do with people. In the beginning was the word. A whispering voice repeated, and that was terrifying enough. That was Paul Kane's words to the wise, as read by Martin Ratom. In a variegated working life, Martin has been a parent, a technical writer, and software developer, a teacher of creative writing, computer science, and business communication symphony musician, and audiobook narrator. He has published short fiction and two collections of his poetry. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.